Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. All right, guys, welcome to episode number 34 of the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. Okay, it sounds like we finally got this intro going after like seven tries, but tonight it's going to be me and Jordan and our buddy Jordan Barnes, backed by popular demand. So uh, we got two, two Jordans? Yeah, no, wait, Jacob and Jordan. <laughs> Dang, man. <laughs> Whatever, we're, we're, we're going to leave it. Dang, man, I'm, I'm, I wish I could be two places in one 
time in a deer stand this fall. Yeah, see, there you go. You could be in uh, you could be in Illinois and Kentucky this fall. There you go. All right. Well, yeah, we're gonna leave that. So, Jacob, what's up, dude? Not much, man. Uh, just <laughs> finally glad we get this all worked out. Uh, having to... a little fun. But, yeah, let's talk about, let's kind of get a little catch up on uh, what's been going on lately uh, with our with our lives. Wait, wait, uh, you, wait, you gotta, we gotta introduce Jordan, man, what's up? Oh, I mean, Jordan, I mean, dude, he's been on here so much, man, everybody should know him by now. <laughs> Jordan is back by popular demand because Jordan is, his episodes are always popular, so we had him, we, we decided to bring him back on. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. Yeah, so we got, so we got, so we have Jordan Barnes on from Close Proximity TV, coming in from South Georgia uh, for this week's episode. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about anything from uh, some public land tactics we're going to be doing this fall. It's kind of what Jordan's been up to, uh, along with some uh, habitat management he's been up to as well. And then also just kind of shoot the breeze on uh, whatever kind of comes to mind, whether us rigging up some kayaks for this season or uh, some of these trips we might be planning. But with all that being said, let's kind of jump into what's been going on with you, Andrew. Uh, I know, well, know you get some some big uh, uh, big news, I guess, for us and all of our listeners if they haven't already seen uh, uh, you know what you've been posting online. But Andrew is officially hitched, or okay, he's not hitched yet, but he's engaged. So, yes, sir. Pop the question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, so, so um, I finally did something smart, and I asked my beautiful, elegant girlfriend of five years, to marry me, and so we're engaged now. boy. Yes, sir. She's sitting in the room right now, smiling at me. <laughs> Better, yeah. Make sure you throw in some brownie points in there, man. Yeah, that's right. Hunts, yeah, so. that's right, man. I gotta kiss some butt because uh, if I'm buying a Georgia license, <laughs> I'll get to I'll get to start hunting way earlier. So. Or <laughs> <laughs> man, you just come up here and hunt Tennessee on this uh, August uh, velvet buck hunt we have up here for three yeah. days. Yeah, or so, come to South Carolina and start in three weeks. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah. I start in three weeks. Me and Alex uh, Faircloth, my buddy. Heck yeah, dude. Well, Andrew, congratulations. Thanks, buddy. Uh, to, you and, to you and Tiffany. I know it's been a long time. Congrats. been a long time coming. Just but uh, before it, before <laughs> anything gets completely settled down we gotta have some more adventures man before uh, all this uh, gets all tied down and then you, come, uh, you no. become a married man yeah I told, I've already told her that before we get married I gotta go elk hunt at some point so I don't man, know man look let me give y'all some married advice just put it in your contract man mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll hunt this many days a year problem solved draw up a marriage <laughs> contract will you be my attorney yeah, for man. that contract I mean <laughs> I'm not like a like registered lawyer or anything. I hadn't passed the bar, but I could work something out for you. Yeah, well, let's um, do it. Yeah. <laughs> by, by, by the way, guys, Jordan is married, so that's not coming from a single guy like myself. So, <laughs> but yeah, Jordan, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a good that's a good little topic right there. I'm sure Tiffany would absolutely love to sign a contract like that. Um, so yeah, and I'm sure that would that would totally keep Andrew from being inside the uh, the doghouse, but. <laughs> Other other than that, uh, I know Jordan. You said you just got back from a uh, a Braves baseball game today, which was just pretty awesome at the new stadium uh, over there in Georgia, man. So that, that's a good time. But uh, let, let's kind of jump straight into uh, this week's topic of kind of you know Jordan. It's gonna be all about you and what you've been up to so far, uh, especially you know some some of the stuff you've been doing on your public land uh, parcels you've been uh, scouting out along with your private land and some of your field management. 
so dude, let's jump into you know what you what have you been doing ever since uh, the end of turkey season? I know you've been busy and you don't have any time to rest well, normally. <laughs> I normally would never go to a Braves baseball game would not be in my itinerary leading up to a deer season. Uh, but because you know I lost a few private land pieces I had last year around November, I guess it was early November. Um, I started like you know our our farm, my uncle's farm is mostly a early season food to bed type farm. Um, not a whole lot of cover, not a lot of doe groups that really stay on it um, because of that up into the rut. So it's you know you got that, and then you got what else? Well, you know I was kind of stuck to public, so I started really scouting slash hunting public hard harder last uh, fall. Um, I always you know did a little bit of public stuff back when I was growing up turkey hunting and stuff, but it forced me to really do research find particular spots like do a grid of for like two and a half hours around me find the best tracks you know decipher what are going to be the best tracks for me uh, make a list and then just start going down the list and then process elimination the tracks that I felt that would give me the best you know possibility and chance to kill a mature buck um, whether it was you know the way I get to the track or the way I get to the spots um, or the size of the land is going to allow me to get away from people, which is my biggest, you know, uh, criteria. And then from there, I had probably seven different public land, or maybe it was 12 different public land tracks. And then I whittled that down to one, two, three, four, four, really maybe five. But, you know, so I went from 12 to five, and then from all those pins, that I had on those five, I whittled that down to probably from 60 to probably 20 legitimate fire spots that I feel like I've got a great chance every time I go in there, I could kill a mature buck. So that's kind of, you know, I started back, back in, you know, November and really hard all the way into February. I remember like leading up even as late as March, probably 14th-ish, I was working on public land deer, like scouting sets, climbing, pre-climbing trees, cutting access trails, uh, bending limbs over to make mock scrapes in strategic spots, Oh yeah. downwind side of doe beds, uh, <clears throat> close proximity to buck bedding, uh, travel corridors, all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I did all that work to where now, you know, all I've got to do is really um, clean out the access in some rivers. I mean, that stuff is changing with water levels. You know, you might go to a spot and it might be high and you go in there and you think it's going to be easy to get to it. But you go back five months later doing some more scouting or finishing up a spot or checking on food sources like persimmons or swamp chestnut oaks or white oaks or red oaks or whatever it is, water oaks. Um, you go back in there and there's logs all over the place and you got a couple new trees that's falling across the river there's all those kind of variables that you got to take into account so i've done that and i've went back and had to clean them out with a chainsaw and i've got it to where i mean whether it's low water or high water there's no surprises in the dark you know i can slip in there like a water moccasin and slither right into the tree and <laughs> feel like i'm going to have a good chance um 
but yeah, so it's basically to the point where I've got all that work done. I I remember uh, back in March. I mean, I pulled a couple of get off work at Friday at, at six and work with a headlamp on. Had already you know decided on where the spots were I was going to set up, and it was just a matter of going there and doing it. So you know, I did it uh, in the dark all through the night. In the next morning, didn't sleep, kept working, and all through the next night. I mean, like 40 hours straight, just, you know, when you got that many spots to set up for strategy-wise access, weed-eating access trails, hiding them to where it's thick, 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 and then when you get within, like, 150 yards, 200 yards from the tree, it's, like, chopped up leaves, easy access, not touching anything, um, not leaving any scent behind. To where you can get to the tree and and your approach is really silent so all that stuff you know kind of ceased a little bit i turkey hunted pretty hard and then i picked it right back up in may when i got back from my western trip i was on the grind been on the grind ever since and pretty much got everything finally finished up so I'm, to say i'm there's a level of anticipation uh would be a gross understatement because i'm pretty jacked up about this fall so dude you sound like you're cocked locked and ready to rock doc yeah man and uh a lot of was able to get pretty much all my private land picked up some new private land this year and i've got a i'm putting in two new kill plots um this year and i've got all that prepped and ready so i'm just waiting on uh plowing and planting um and i'm filming that whole thing from start to finish took took about a half acre of just overgrown old volunteer pine and probably took out de-stumped 30 pine trees and cleaned it all up and kind of going to show that whole process from the start to finish uh it's pretty cool though but yeah got everything pretty much ready so definitely excited well, Jordan, let's. Uh, I'd like for you to kind of break down a little bit more. Let's take all this, you know, step by step, kind of break all this down uh, when it comes to some of this public land parcels and, and really what you're looking for. I know you're, you're talking about, you know, access is key for you. You know, trying to find something that's more difficult for people to get to. But what makes, in your opinion, uh, whether you're hunting in, uh, you know, Georgia, Alabama, Kentucky, Illinois, wherever you're going to hunt for deer, what makes a piece of public land appealing to you? And what are you looking for uh, to kind of you know, check off some properties that are willing to, you know, you know, put boots on the ground on and some of them you kind of, you know, buzz by like, you know, they're not worth looking at right now. Right. Well, man, really honestly, I think, is it, is it in an area where, um, is it in an area where I can get away from people where at the end of a road, I could go a mile and a half, two miles and, no one can get to the spot that I'm in or is the is the piece of public landlocked once I get deep in there is it landlocked by private all around it I really like that um, is it a long way for the private land people to get to where I'm at even based on where the dirt roads are the road is all that stuff <clears throat> I take into account um, as well as topographical features you know um, is it Basically, I got one spot, and it's uh, you know a long way. It's a, it's a big bowl, big swamp, and it comes down. When you look at it on topo, it comes down to one particular point where the whole 
you can pretty much take 2,000 acres and the whole thing pinches down to where the deer, where the buck's gonna cut. All the does coming out of the swamp and out into like the pin oaks and stuff, or not pin oaks, we don't have pin oaks in southeast Georgia. A lot of people think we do, but we actually don't. A biologist at Mississippi State University will tell you that when I went out there for uh, wildlife biology for a little while and uh, ended up coming back to Southern. But anyhow, it's turkey oaks or what they call post oaks. All those does are coming out to all that stuff. And those bucks are cutting the downwind side of that um, on this one little point. So, you know, it's stuff like that that I notice on, on the maps, you know, on Onyx maps. And that's little stuff like that I look for. Um, some of it is like, I don't know, it's addicting. It's like an adventure. You know, can I, I see a really good spot, but can I get to that spot? All mm-hmm. right. How much work am I going to have to do to get to it? I don't mind doing the work. Once I get to that spot, it's always like a, a level of anticipation because it's like, okay, it's either going to be really, really fire, and this point is going to be exactly what I thought it would be based on the sign I should find at that point. And in this particular case, when I came up to that point, there was a perfect tree to climb. There was a big breeder scrape right there. There was a bunch of rubs where that buck was, you could tell, a defined line where a buck was, had a rub line, you know, where he was, you could tell it wasn't like a, a lot of times when I see a rub line right like that, it's, and there's no like huge destination food sources and stuff like that, it's telling me in that particular case, okay, that's a buck during the rut. After, after like early season, that's a buck that's like on a defined mission, cutting the downwind side, like cutting doe trails. And uh, I went up that spot and it, it dang sure was. So that's, I guess, I guess I answered that somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I look for is sometimes a smaller track that might be overlooked. Um, you know, one spot's like right off a road and uh you know it's a spot that most people would overlook now i haven't hunted there yet this will be like a learning season but another spot i have hunted last year i did run a cell cam in there and i had several mature bucks one being a probably pope and young type deer that uh it was the same type kind of point and pinch and you know i have to access from a creek and if you don't walk in the creek you're you're basically going along, you're blowing in any deer and every deer out of there. So that one was kind of just a, sometimes you just, I, I guess, sometimes I just dive into an area and uh, the sign, what I find is, is promising, you know, and I just kind of go off of that. But places that are hard for people to get to really and overlooked, that's, that's I hate to give a cookie cutter answer, but that's kind of, that's kind of how I do it. Now, another thing that I know we talked about earlier this week uh, when we were talking about kind of like what you've been up to and what I've been up to is you're excited for this early season and trying to, you know, play a little aggressive this early season, talking on, you know, finding these old rub lines, you know, going from bedding areas to feeding areas that kind of are telltale spots for possibly some early season rub lines. Uh, is that something you're going to try to key on this year uh, is trying to find some of those old rub lines to kind of key on for this season? And if so, you know, what's your tactic to go about finding some of those areas? Right. Well, I mean, I think I I feel like there's two different types of rubs. I feel like, you know, if, and it really depends on what's around the area. Now, if it's like a uh, food source that could be changing, 
like maybe the deer are really staging up and they, they, these bucks have a staging area where they're in velvet and they're coming out of velvet and they've got a staging area where there's a cluster, a large cluster of rubs and they're on a basic food to bed pattern, bed to food pattern. All right, once that crop's harvested and it kind of dies off a little bit and bucks get into rut mode where they're looking for actively seeking does, that pattern is not, not saying it's totally non-existent, that they won't go to that, but it's more so changed to more of a, I'm looking for a connector. I'm looking for, I'm looking for not just the rub line, which I find like, you know, one rub and the next one I connect the dots and I'm connecting the dots and then I put the piece of the puzzle together. Okay, why is he walking this way? What's the normal winds I get in this particular area for that buck? Okay, it's a westerly wind and um, let's see, it's a westerly wind and he's walking on the east side of this clear cut. Well, that tells me he's cutting the downwind side of that clear cut to smell any estrus does that are in that block. And, and the, his rub line's telling me that. That's kind of, um, you know, what I look for. And it just really depends on the spot, really. Um, and you kind of connect, I can look at a place and kind of connect the dots there. And, gives me a really good starting point. Now some places, uh, like I got one place that's not far off of a road uh, and a lot of people walk past it to go deeper. And I actually stumbled upon this buck. I walked across this opening and I said, I wanna see what's in here. And I was scouting midday. I walked across the opening and I came into like an oak flat on a hill. And I jumped a buck when I put two foot in the woods out of coming up out of this clearing I jumped I startled the buck up he didn't run off like crazy he just got up and trotted and started walking and he was he was a stud and he was literally not far at all from where I parked my truck so you know that just kind of showed me man these bucks on public land a lot of a lot of people are used to walking deep and this buck was sitting on the military crest of a hill you know, with his, basically, his back uh, was to the wind. You know, the wind was in his back, and he was looking out over this big bedding area, CRP. He's on military crest of that hill, and that kind of, I saw that, and I went in this year, you know, after the season and made a game plan for him. Got to where if he beds in that spot, um, that area, after there's already been several hunts in that area, there's a lot of pressure, that's when I'm going to go to that spot because I feel like a buck, if not him, another mature buck will do the same type thing and I'll be climbing a tree, you know, within a hundred yards of that bed. That's awesome, dude. That's something that Dan Infault talks a lot about, which we always talk about Dan Infault, probably sound like a broken record, but he's got all kinds of stories about killing a deer, you know, literally overlooking a parking lot, you know, where the thing was on top of a hill watching people access the area yeah yeah and we found beds like that too my friend danny um i met him when i was working at that bow shop and uh there's a place that me and him both hunted at the time and we were talking about this very subject like buck beds and this is before i got really into the buck beds and everything and he told me there's there's like a long access road that goes down uh alongside a river and he he was scouting up behind that access road and he said there's like a a bed right up on top of this knob on the hill with rubs all around it where this buck was literally watching that road he'd watch people drive by all day oh yeah 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 and i've i've heard uh 
just recently heard that uh, Dan Infault guy, and you know what he's saying is spot on. I mean, obviously the guy, um, you know, is really successful, but that's that's exactly you know kind of what I found on that. That's a prime example on that particular spot. Um, I put a breeder scrape probably 50 yards from that bed or that area because I'm I'm sure I found a couple beds, but I'm sure there's more in there. I just didn't want to dive in there because there wasn't a tree for me to get even tighter. And me getting tighter, I kind of come access that buck and I come at him on a down, like on a slope. So I'm, I've got the hill between me and him to where I can just pop right up there and, you know, keep my back, keep the tree in between me and him when I climb to where I do it really slowly. I already know his back's going to be to me based on how he was, you know, I know with that particular wind that west wind that's how i'm going to access it on a west wind yeah so he's going to get up from the back to his wind and he's going to walk into the wind and he's going to take that rub line which i found which makes like a j hook and it goes around on this ridge and he makes a big loop into this food plot about half mile away so it's a, uh, it's kind of cool man um just kind of putting the pieces you know the puzzle together yeah dude it is that's that's awesome, uh, and a lot of that early season stuff you're talking about, like the the rub lines and the bachelor groups of bucks and everything, that's something that Jacob yeah. Schmidt talked about. We interviewed him in episode two of the podcast, the very <clears throat> second episode we did, and he was talking about that for early season tactics, finding like a a whole bunch of rubs, and it's, it turns out yeah, staging area for a bachelor yeah. group of bucks. But earlier yeah. you mentioned that. So, so you're going to South Carolina to hunt this really early season, aren't you? Yeah, I don't know how much we're going to hunt in August. Like, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, we basically call that uh, the Low Country Project, where we're taking a property that is, it has way too many miles at the table. Uh, it never has had a supplemental feeding program. Had problems trying to get the deer on it in the past. And... You know, I've just kind of been helping my buddy. He's a really good manager. He, he's very astute, very knowledgeable. Um, but we just kind of, kind of been putting our brains together to try to get this thing going. Um, we did, I would say we did TSI, but we just axed a bunch of pines that were ba- basically a biological desert uh, on the top half of the property. And uh, we let that go into a clear cut for natural browse. And we're just burning that clear cut. I mean, just making there's some there's so much of a diversity of different forbs in that thing and we're just going to manage the clear cut we're going to burn it in sections uh to keep a successional habitat where you got different uh stages of clear cut at different lengths you know you got cover in one you don't burn hens will nest in that better um fawn bedding you know fawns hiding from coyotes stuff like that and then you have different sections that will block at different times so you always got a different landscape there. Um, and then we put in, oh, probably a seven acre food plot on the top to add seven acres of food. Cause you know, there's like a, there needs to be on any property. I feel like there needs to be a good leveled out between the mouths of the table and the amount of habitat that's there, the amount of food that's there. So um, we put in some food there we're in the process so all we got to do is is plan it we got to line it and plan it and then we did a soil sample all that stuff and then we got another food plot that's probably three acres 
about middle of the property and then in the towards the back which is very important um, not a lot of food plots in the back we're knocking out there's probably two one acre food plots and we're going to join them together to make probably an eight acre destination feed so we're doing that um, we've got the deer start on supplemental feed program uh, and that's that's going pretty well uh, we we've staggered different trough feeders throughout the property and you know kind of got them used to it so they're starting to eat out of it and then once we get these food plots done uh, and converge all these plots and get them done we will stack double stack the trough feeders in those three spots so we'll probably run three troughs together on three different spots top middle and back and what that's going to do is really just keep all the food confined to one area uh, won't hunt that as much but we'll you know focus on the outskirts of that and try to catch these bucks you know cutting the down cutting doe trails that are going to and from you know from bed to food we're going to be intercepting any bucks that are trying to cut those trails so Heck yeah you know, they'll work perpendicular as y'all know they're going to work perpendicular yeah. to all those doe trails so that's kind of um the strategy and uh we got a lot of work done got a lot of work done this weekend um kind of and i don't know if i've touched on this but my main goals after i've found the spot and i know where i want to be is i'm going to go in and get the access to the spot done because i feel like you know you can have the best spot that's like just a fire spot you feel real confident in, but if you can't get to that tree without being seen smelled or detected then you know it's most of the time going to be a bust you know so i think that's important you know, I think the scent that you leave behind is just as important as the scent in the stand. I mean, what you smell like in the stand. You can play the wind so much, but let's say you leave, you know, scent brushing up against stuff. Don't plan on hunting it a bunch of times unless you get lucky. Uh, because, you know, I just feel like that buck doesn't have wings to fly away. He doesn't have fangs to defend himself. You know, he lives and dies by that nose. And I pay probably extra special attention to his nose and all facets of it um, just because in order to be consistently in front of big deer especially in the southeast and y'all being in Alabama uh, as you know it's you got to be got to be on your P's and Q's uh, once I get the access trail done I'll try to climb a quiet tree I like a sweet gum if I can find one real soft bark a poplar is really good if it's a pine and I gotta climb it, I'm gonna go ahead and climb it three or four times, just to knock all that bark make sure off. It's quiet. Yeah, yeah. When I climb, it want, I want it to be quiet, and then I'll go ahead and cut, you know, my little holes to, to shoot, which is really important when you're self filming. So, and a lot of times I'll try to give them something to stop at. Like I'll try to do like I talked a little bit about before, is those mock scrapes. Um, I've actually got a system where. I'm going to do a video on how I build it, but I'm, I build a scrape dripper that will hold two months worth of scent. It's kind of a trial. Um, I'm going to test it this year. I have tested it to see as far as the longevity of how long it'll drip and how it works, but you know, it's going to hold that scent and keep that scrape active for a long time. That way I'm not having to go in there constantly uh, and, and mess, with it, mess with it. So. That's kind of the strategy on the public stuff, and then on some of the private stuff, it's the same thing. But on some of it, uh, especially in South Carolina, where you can feed 
I've got uh, me and Alex are strategically placing hanging feeders, um, which I like a hanging feeder. It's just kind of a trial too, but I like a hanging feeder because it's not legs, and I feel like something some bucks just they just don't like feeding around it. So we've got hanging feeders with hoists that we're going to put about 15 foot up in the tree, and we'll fill it with 300 pounds, and we'll run it once a day. And that way, we're kind of in between that perpendicular line where that buck's going to work. We'll, we'll be tight in proximity to doe bedding groups and stuff. That way, we've got something to stop the deer. So if a buck comes through there cruising or checking does in that little area, um, it's going to get, number one, the does on their feet earlier if it's closer to their bed. And we'll kind of catch them, those does staging up before they go out to the big uh, destination feed. But it's going to give us an ability to film a deer and stop them, you know, and be able to shoot them. So it's, it's hard when they're walking on a, on a dead trot or cruising, stuff like that, to get a shot uh, and produce a good film, you know. So kind of that's kind of the strategy, though. Now, now, Jordan, one thing that you kind of touched on, there's, well, there's two parts I'd like to talk about is the first one is talking about how y'all are doing y'all's food plots in South Carolina. Last week I had Chad Richard on from uh, North Florida, and his tactic when he's planting food plots is he's all about like these micro plots, real, real small plots, and he does a ton of them uh, across the landscape to have multiple different areas that these deer can kind of come to feed. Uh, for a couple different reasons, he does that. One, re- one reason so he can limit the risk of disease for both the plants and then also the deer uh, being able to you know, have mouth-to-mouth contact and stuff like that, being concentrated in one area. And also has them a lot of different other places he can hunt. And, you know, right. say, say he blows out, you know, a quarter acre or, or an eighth of an acre plot, he can move on to something else, no big deal. Now, on y'all's property with that, you know, you have like seven acre plot and you're talking about to make one up to eight acre plot. You know, right. is that something that y'all strategically would like to do or was that something that was already there and y'all just wanted to plant that whole thing? And then also, well, well second part of that, also, what are y'all planning in that plot right now, uh, you know, gotcha. forage? Gotcha. All right. So really, our strategy there... Um, it's different than my strategy. Our strategy there has a purpose. Our main purpose is to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. So they're not as much hunting plots as they are drawing deer from far and wide and holding deer and giving deer the proper nutrition. Plus with the supplemental feed in the same spot. So we got a top plot, a middle plot, and a back plot with stack trawl feeders on the plot. So the goal is some of these plots we have to go past to get to the stand in the back right to catch them to catch the doe groups leaving the plots and to be in the spot where the buck's going to intercept those doe trails all right so the main goal is to you know construct the destination food and then what we'll do is we'll have a screen of about 30 yards wide off the roads with egyptian wheat where we're blocking we're walking past it you know and no the deer can't see us but you know, that's a kind of a different strategy. Uh, now we will have satellite plots that are far from the destination feed to catch the deer there before they, you know, so they stage up there before they go to the destination feed. But if it's a track of land, and let's say it's not that big of a property, uh, which I deal with a lot. What I'm gonna do is a lot different than that because I'm not gonna have the amount of land to have a destination food source and have a satellite plot. Now, if it's a small track of land and there's already a big ag field that I know the deer are gonna naturally go to, 
then my kill plot basically is a satellite plot in and of itself. So I don't really worry about making a bunch of them on one place. If it's a small track of land, I try to have one food plot that's a kill plot that I don't have to that I can hunt multiple times uh, a season a lot, and I'll do it to where my entrance and exit is totally blocked with vegetation where a deer cannot see me at all the only time a deer might see me is when I'm climbing out the stand uh, and I build them in a shape to where like it's a boomerang to where I give them structure to get behind I leave structure in the food plot in places strategically where I can get in and out um, I can approach on the downwind side all those type things I look for that way I've had a lot of success getting in and getting out and hunting the same kill plots without having to worry about blowing deer out. Uh, never had a problem with disease in the southeast. I mean, I put, you know, food plots and had deer browsing hard. Uh, never had any issues that I've seen. Uh, obviously you can feed corn in the southeast or in Georgia. So, and South Carolina, but Georgia is where most of my hunting's done. Um, I'll put, you know, corn out in a pile and I'll keep it and I'll be consistent. I'll never let it run out. I'll, I'll be watching it. I'll always keep corn there and I'll have the food plot as well. So I've got grain because it's not as, it's not as, it's not big enough of a plot to plant standing corn of any uh, quantity. So I'll feed the corn and I'll have the greens. So that's really the strategy. And I think it's like if, if, if I'm consistent and I know that that deer is a slave to his belly, then it's going to pay off for me. They'll know where they can go get food at all times. That's kind of the strategy, but as far as uh, what I plant, I like a variety. Um, I've had a lot of luck with a variety. A deer likes a lot of different things. Um, now, one thing that I do that maybe, you know, I'm going to get asked for on this podcast that people <laughs> say, oh, he does it all wrong, you know, um, is I plant wheat, winter wheat, on these small half acre kill plots, I will plant winter wheat really thick um, for the food to bed pattern, for the early season food pattern. And the reason why I plant winter wheat uh, and some oats, but mostly winter wheat first, is because an iron clay pea or something that, that most people plant, um, the deer are gonna nip the plant, all right, below what's called the cotyledon, which is like the heartbeat of the plant. And then after that, that's why you see a lot of these soybean plots or these uh, small soybean plots that have no protection, that aren't fenced off, or ironclad pea plots are just green toothpicks. It's because the deer has nipped the plant below the cotyledon, so it's not going to be able to throw any more trifoliates from then on. So the plant is, by all means, dead and will not produce any more forage at all. So. What I try to do is I use, I plant winter wheat and I plant it too early, I guess you could say. I plant it, you know, 10 days prior to opener. So by the time the opener gets here, the deer are wearing it out, it's tender to them, they like it, and it draws the bucks in there. And then I'll have to replant. You know, hopefully I get a crack at the buck I'm after. Um, and I've had a lot of success getting bucks on a pattern and normally I get a chance. Uh, and then I'll replant again with my long-term fall plot and I'll plant that probably you know most of the time that'll take me probably October 
fifth or so. Um, so I'll get a full 35 days on it, and then I'll plant it in uh, Harvest Advantage 4S makes really good. Uh, it's got like a variety. Like I said before, I really like a variety. A deer likes a variety of stuff. So I plant that. It's got forage oats in it. It's got a generic wheat. Uh, it's got some other forage annuals, cereal grains. And then I'll supplement that uh, as well with like turnips, radishes, hairy vetch, uh, ladino clover, air leaf clover, um, brassicas. I like a, a variety of stuff, but that's, that's kind of what I do. Well, the cool thing about living so far in the South like we do, or at least y'all two do, and me now being in Nashville, not so much, is you, your planting season is so much longer. I mean, I've, I know years like, God, it's probably three years ago we had a pretty bad drought uh, in Alabama, and we, I mean, first two weeks of season in, in middle of October, we didn't have anything planted, or we tried to plant, and it was so dry, nothing would take. And, you know, we were still able to plant on into November and still had great food plots going into January. Uh, because of that, just because you know you live so far south, you know we have little cold fronts every now and then, but you know we rarely get some really early uh, frosts, uh, you know, early on in the season. Right. Uh, so that that's the cool thing about you know living where you live and living where Andrew lives is it's a lot more uh, forgiving, I guess you could say, when you are uh, trying to put a plot in. You know, maybe you put something in, you know, in July or August, and it, maybe it doesn't take very well. Well, you have all the way up until most of the time, all the way up until the first couple weeks of October to put something in before it's a little too late. Uh, so, right. so that's that's awesome that you're kind of doing that and you're implementing that on your properties. Um, now, with that being said, you know, are y'all using or one, one thing I was going to talk about is you know on that one property in South Carolina, you know, you're talking about like a seven acre plot. Well, for most guys, even myself, I mean, that's ginormous plot. I mean, that is impressive. Like I, to be honest, I want to see some photos of that because that's that's I hopefully y'all have it manicured and you have uh, the soil test and everything done on it where it's going to come in very lush. I think it's going to be beautiful. Uh, But a lot of guys, you know, see that and they're like, man, that's a big piece of, that's a big piece of ground to till up and work. And they might not have that kind of, that kind of space to be able to do that. So that's why, like you were talking about, you know, winter wheat, which Chad Richard, who I had on last week, you know, he liked winter wheat a lot. And I know winter wheat's one of those topics that a lot of guys, you know, a lot of people kind of talk bad about, but he likes it just because of how tender it is. It can grow, like he said, in the back of his truck, in, in the bed of his truck, uh, with just a little bit of moisture. So it's very easy right. for people to grow. And plus, the deer love it. I mean, I haven't been to anywhere in the South where deer don't want winter wheat at some time of the year. Uh, so that's awesome you're doing that. Now, on some of your properties that you've got in t- uh, Georgia, I know you get pr- uh, permission to uh, get a new property uh, or new access for this year on some uh, private land. Uh, talk about what you're going to try to do on that property when it comes to some of the management at this, you know, this late in the game uh, going into summer. All right. Well, uh, and I'll say, too, that the big destination food sources we put in in South Carolina, uh, we pulled soil sample test on that back in February. Now, we apply the lime based on, based on the nutrients the soil needed, not just the lime, but the nutrients the soil was calling for uh, to get the pH for what we're planting needs to be about a 65. So a general rule of thumb is a, is a ton of lime to raise the soil a point per acre. So we got 50 tons of lime for all the food plots, but you know that's going to take some time to break down. Uh, but all the plots are prepped and you know we're using a 125 horse John Deere with a Genesis no-till drill so Ooh, son we're that's I I realize that's not uh something that's feasible for a lot of people even myself I mean it's not my equipment 
Uh, I do have access to tractors at my uncle's farm, and I use his, but I also will rent a tractor. I mean, uh, it doesn't take a lot to manufacture a half-acre food plot with your hands. I mean, it takes, I've done it probably five times. This is my fifth time, the one I just finished on the, on the parcel you're talking about that I just got access to. Um, you know, I look at a place, I look at what tree I'm gonna use for, I like a lock on. If it's a permanent set, I'm gonna be in and out of a lot, trying to catch a buck on a food pattern. Um, obviously, I'm gonna wait for the perfect conditions. Uh, but if I got a buck on a pattern, you're, you're bet, you know, you'll bet I'll be there. But really, the tools I'm using, and I've got it, I'll show it in my video on this kill plot construction video. So it's about a half acre plot, um, pretty much was volunteer pines. I looked at it, envisioned it, what it would look like, how good it could be, found the water oak to get in. Uh, water oak breaks out to three limbs, perfect cover, great back cover, perfect entry, entering on the south side. So on the downwind side, we'll have either a northeast, north or northwest wind, early season. Uh, I can even get away with a strong uh, west wind or a strong east wind. So I've positioned it in a right spot, but honestly, I used a weed eater with .155 wire, which is really thick, but it helps knock down cut saplings that are probably, you know, like a, a dowel rod thick. Um, I will go ahead. First thing I do is I grid it, uh, mark on like my onyx map, I'll mark out the plot, what I think it should look like, and I'll follow those lines by sight and by map with orange flag and take and I'll flag it off. Um, once I've flagged the plot off, then I go to weedy everything down. Everything that I can get without cutting with like either loppers or a chainsaw or an axe. Um, didn't use a chainsaw on this particular plot. I uh, did it all by hand, but I'll weed eat everything and then I'm left with the bigger stuff. And then from there, I start using a lopper to cut all the smaller stuff that's like one to two inches. And then after I've drug, I like to drag all that stuff off so I'll cut it and I'll drag it off and pile it in front of the stand to help block my entry. Um, and then once I've done all that, I've got all the litter out of the food plot, right? So then I've got my bigger stuff that's like three inches to 10, 12 inches in diameter, thick stuff. And then from there, what I'll do is just ax off the top of the trees and drag them off and, and pile them. And then I'm left with basically a bunch of stumps. So I don't know in this last one uh, that I did, there might've been 40, there's anywhere from 40 to 50 stumps, uh, ranging from three inches to 12 inches. And you know, I, I like to cut them off about chest high that way it gives me leverage. So when I'm, what I'll do is I'll take an ax and I'll take an ax and I'll cut around the base of that tree. And I'll chop, chop, chop. And then I'll go further out from that about eight inches because you know those roots are around that tree and I'll chop around eight inches. Then I'll take a shovel, I'll dig out all the dirt and I'll break up, you know, break up the tree a little bit. And then I'll start pushing it back and forth, back and forth. And then I'll take an ax and I'll a lot of times it'll, a pine, like a longleaf, will pop out. Um, a lot of this was longleaf and slash, um, and I'll pop it out of there, drag the stump, throw it in a pile, and uh, fill the dirt back in and go to the next one. So it took me probably, I don't know, 60 hours by hand, 
and uh, I got it ready to go and sprayed it and applied just a generic amount of lime uh, on a half acre. So a half acre, I'm guessing normally it's anywhere from 4.8 to 5.3 uh, if it's barren ground, hadn't been worked in a while. So I'm looking to raise it, you know, at least a point. So I'll use about a thousand pounds of lime on a half acre plot. That'd be the equivalent to a ton on a one acre plot to raise the point. And then I'll, and then, you know, a lot of times that lime takes a long time to break down, but any, any time's better than never. So, uh, I will, after the season, I'll take another soil sample test and the next year the soil will be perfect. So that's kind of, um, I guess hopefully I answered your question without spilling on too much. Oh, no, that was perfect. I mean, that's that's the kind of cool thing to kind of see you, uh, you know, do, you know, building a kill plot by hand, you know, kind of opening up the, the canopy for that. Uh, one of our buddies, uh, Greg Broadway, he actually did the same thing on a piece of private ground that he has and uh, did the same thing, went in there and cut out some pine trees and made a real small little kill plot. Uh, and, you know, that, that's just one of those things that it's always in the back of your playbook if you have the opportunity to do it and also the resources and also Again, either landowner's permission or, you know, you have, you know, you own the property to be able to do that. Man, uh, you don't need permission. You just start chopping stuff, man. It's always <laughs> better to ask forgiveness. <laughs> no, um, don't no, do that. Right. Uh, yeah, don't do that. Always get permission. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things. I just feel like there's something special about the amount. And, and y'all know me. I'm big on sweat equity. Like, I don't do outfitters. Um, I don't. Nothing against people that do that. Um, I have some time that I'm blessed with God's giving me a job that I have some free time. And, you know, I do work hard in my job, but that allows me, you know, some autonomy there to make my schedule. Um, but if I've got time, man, I just, and normally I do, but there's just something special about putting literal blood, sweat, and tears into something and, and envisioning something and then putting in that plan acting out that plan and then seeing the end result and then harvest like killing an animal over that uh, I won't say harvest because we're not planting uh, tomatoes and killing them but <laughs> we're, we're killing deer uh, so let me make that point but we're taking an animal's life there's nothing wrong with that you got to be proud about that uh, God's made us stewards but there's just something special about building a plot like that uh, with your hands. Now, the only thing I will do, I will either get a tiller, uh, a push tiller, um, sometimes they're self-propelled, and I'll do that up to a half acre, but preferably for, you know, maybe $200, you can rent a 35 horsepower tractor and a disc hair. So, you just map it out where you rent that tractor and you do, if you've got five kill plots, you just go hit every one of them. Half acre shouldn't take you you know, 20 minutes to plow. So you do it right, you remove all the stumps, all the litter, you spray it, you lime it, and then you put a plow to it. Uh, you should not have any problems, and uh, it's, it's pretty feasible to do. Yeah, well, that's awesome. And, again, I'm still kind of jealous about the whole uh, – that no-till, Genesis no-till you've got over there in uh, South Carolina. Uh, that's, that's it's a, definitely not mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, well, that, dude, that's, that is a nice piece of equipment, man. God, that's that, – we – our, our family farm in uh, central Alabama, uh, prefer, or actually Bibb County, for anyone that's uh, familiar with Alabama, any of our listeners down there, uh, you know, we've got we've got this one massive hillside uh, that 
you know, this, this whole property used to be a giant uh, cattle farm. It used to be 500 acres. My great-great-grandfather sold most of it off, and we're left with about an 85-acre piece of track now of land. And uh, Uncle planted most of it in pines. We harvest most of those pines about four and a half years ago. And, uh, you know, as we got this one piece of property that we'd never been able to plant just because it's on a it's probably on a 4% grade uh, hillside. It's a massive hillside, though. Uh, that we normally just let go up in grass and we, you know, we burn it or, you know, uh, you know, run a bush hog through it. But dude, if we had, we've been talking about getting a no-till and planting that whole hillside with soybeans. I mean, cause we already planted the, the valley in soybeans and just run it all right. up the hillside. I mean, adding, it add another, you know, almost three acres to the, to the plot. And I mean, right. that's, that's the thing, man. So I'm, I'm kind of jealous of you having that aspect. That's, that's awesome, man. Have that kind of resource. But, um, yeah. Now, now, let's talk about kind of like what this fall is looking like for you. you know, actually, no, before we do that, I want to talk about your kayak, okay? Because yeah. let, let's, let's talk about, okay, first of all, let's talk about what happened during turkey season on, on, with your kayak and, you know, what happened up in uh, Kentucky. And then talk about what you're playing now this year, what you're using now, and how you're, how you're playing, how you can implement all that. Right. Whoa, so, whoa, 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 wait, uh, wait. Before we do that, uh, when, when you get into this, I'd like to hear the story about falling off the kayak, too. Oh, that's, oh we're going to do that. He's going to do that. <laughs> Just get ready. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, yeah, that, that's definitely... I'm going to go get some gauze out of the uh, med kit, because that's a, that's a sore subject. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, basically, this was like a five-mile adventure. Uh, down this really big river um i got there probably at it was getting light in kentucky at the time at probably 5 30 i got there at 2 30 uh i put in probably 245 um it took me three hours to go five miles with a 35 uh, pound thrust trolling motor and a big battery um and a little kayak 10.4 foot long and um you know, there's some mods that I should have made, like the decoys. Obviously, I bow hunt turkeys and I self film, so a decoy is absolutely must. Not necessary, you know, obviously, if you're using a shotgun, but so you got the decoys to put on the kayak, rig that up. You got your bow and you got um, a battery, color motor, and your vest. So I wear the vest, you know, it's kind of tight in there with that on. And I went all the way up this river. Uh, it was probably 3.30 in the morning. I probably went one mile, one and a half miles, and a turkey gobbles. And I look up in the moonlight, and the gobbler's right over me. And he shot gobbled to the sound of the trolling motor paddling in the water. Um, it's crazy. So I kept going. It's light by the time I get there. Um, so turkey was gobbling. So I get go past the turkey about a mile because the only place I could get up the bank and there was private there for about a mile stretch so I couldn't hunt that side until I went on down. Well, long story short, short, I get out like literally climb like a seriously I don't know what percent grade incline it was it was straight up. It was muddy <laughs> the water level had dropped on the river so it's like nastiest, slimiest mud you've ever seen in your life and I basically found a group of trees that were at different heights of the bank and just used that and somehow got up. Um, and I hunted the edge of the public and called like eight jakes a thousand yards across this field. What can shoot a jake? 
decided to get back in the kayak and went out kayaking. And I was getting back down in the kayak, I was about halfway down the bank, like straight drop off, and I slipped. And I fell into a hole, like in the river. And my vest filled up with water, I had my bow still in my hand, uh, I had my other hand, I had the decoys around my neck, thankfully. Uh, so I had a free hand and I literally was sinking and I grabbed hold of one tree and that tree, you know, could I have got out maybe, uh, if I didn't get caught under the water on something, uh, it was, it was scary guy. I mean, I'm yeah, man. Say, it, was, I bet it, was. it was pretty dang scary. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I learned a lesson. The valuable lesson is be really prepared. Um, one thing I did learn. I think if you learn something, you know, like I say, I'm no expert. I'm learning every day, but uh, I learned to bring a shovel with me to carve out steps in any bank. <laughs> dig me out a ladder, basically, to get up safely. Um, and so that's kind of, that was a valuable lesson. I learned it. Um, I'm thinking about going to that same spot because it's soybeans in this particular spot that I can get to that no one else can really access. Um, and I'm thinking about dragging the kayak probably 700 yards to a mouth of a creek that runs out in the river and from there it would only be about I don't know .6 miles so I would be able to go and if the water level was down I could use that shovel to get up on the bank so there you go I don't know man it was it was crazy but yeah the, what else did you want to know about the kayak yeah I was going to say so you know you told me after that whole dilemma of you almost drowning while turkey hunting uh, about, you know, you wanted to change to like a, a larger boat or something like that and you were going to step away from doing the whole kayak thing but then you found this other kayak that you just got your hands on that you're now in love with and I'd like for you to kind of talk about that as an option, as a budget option for someone that wants to get into kayak hunting, first of all, or kayak fishing and it's on a like, reasonable budget and you've, you know, get some experience with it so far and kind of just tell us how you like it and how you're going to rig it up for this fall all right, you're talking about the new canoe or the one I have now? The one you have now, yeah. Okay, the one I have now is a Voyager 10.4. Uh, basically, I made a mount for it where you can put a trailer motor on it. Um, the smaller, the larger creeks, I guess you could say, and smaller rivers, you don't really need a motor for it. Um, you know, I can paddle up upstream two miles, no problem. Probably won't take me more than 20 minutes. Uh, not that bad. If I'm in a bigger body of water, it's not too bad. I'll use basically the PVC mount that goes down in the rod holders, and then it has an overlap board, a two by four that runs out to the right side of the kayak. That's what I mount the trailer motor on, uh, and then the battery's stored in the back portion of the kayak, and then you run your wires up. Um, but that's kind of what I'm using. Gonna make some mods to it. Um, I'm gonna put some handles on the front where I can connect better with a strap to strap my bow across it. Um, I'm also gonna put on the front of the kayak a cleat, like a nylon cleat, plastic cleat. And then I'm gonna wrap paracord around that cleat with a clamp on it. That way when I get to a spot, I can unravel it and just clamp it to a tree. And don't have to worry about my kayak floating off or anything like that. Um, so those are the mods I'm really gonna make to it. Uh, and I've thought about also cutting out and inserting rod holders in strategic places on the back of the kayak. That way I can slide uh, a four pole PVC frame 
that will allow me to mount a kayak off the very back of the um, basically build a transom for it to where it's off the back of the kayak so it centers the weight because a lot of times the old mount that I have it puts a lot of weight on the side of the kayak so you have to offset the battery on the left side because most of the trolling motor weights on the right side so it, it's not like super unsafe unstable but you know I think it would be a lot better option to have like an extended handle on the trolling motor mm -hmm. that Minkota makes to where you can reach it and go straight off the back of the kayak um, and then you know rig you up a frame to slide the battery in on that back portion of the, uh, the kayak but yeah that's that's kind of what I'm using man I mean it's the main thing I like it for is it doesn't have like a canoe point to it mm -hmm. so if you go up over a log or something you're going to be stable the whole way going over it um, some of the others I've tested out probably seven other you know small to mid-level kayaks and a lot of them just they're just not as comfortable as this one uh, for some reason but the only thing wrong with the one that I have right now that Voyager is uh, it's got a cup holder in front of you right where you have your legs go down in it it's a sit-in kayak now I sit on top um, and that cup holder is a hard plastic and it drops down low into the cabin so I'm probably gonna cut that thing off and then probably screw in some fabric to where I screw in the cup holder to where I can push it up out of my way you know mm -hmm. and I could probably store my turkey decoys up under there uh, I could store other stuff, you know, up under there. Yeah, and it's kind of a cool thing we're talking about kayaks right now because, you know, you've got me kind of interested in doing a kayak. And, you know, I, for, at a, for a while I was dead set on the new canoe Frontier 12, which if anyone listening right now, if, if you're wanting a, a small kayak, or a, a, a good-sized kayak, small vessel that you can do a lot with, uh, you need to check out that kayak. It is it is extremely impressive. Uh, and it holds up to 650 pounds, so you can get a full-size deer in their tree stand, boat, all that gear. The seat pushes all the way to the back. It's fully adjustable. It's tons of room, and it. it's unreal. Um, but I'm actually actually right now I have paused my TV, a video I'm watching for you know best kayaks for under a thousand dollars, and I found one on here that is absolutely amazing. It actually puts the uh, the uh, that Frontier 12 uh, gives it a run for its money. And it's actually about three hundred dollars cheaper. Uh, What's and it called? It's called the Vibe. It's made by Vibe, and it's the Yellowfin thir uh, one thirty. The Yellowfin one thirty, and it's a tan. Wow. Now it's a tan. It's a thirteen foot tandem kayak, but you can take the back chair out and you can put one chair dead center in the middle of it, and it locks down. And dude, it's got so much room. It is on freaking real. I mean, it's a thirteen foot kayak. I mean, it's a big kayak. It's a flat top, sit on top, flat top kayak. Plenty of storage. I mean, you. I think it's. I gotta look at the uh, weight capacity. I think it's 500 pound weight capacity. So you put, you know, a, you know, deer on that. You put deer, tree stand, bow, camera gear, all that kind of stuff, and another person in there if you really wanted to, and be able to float it out. Uh, yeah. It is extremely impressive. So I'm, I'm thinking almost leaning towards that too. Plus, it's. I think it's 36, 38 inches wide, 36 to 38 inches wide, which is you know very stable. Allows you kind of stand up on if you need to maneuver around, and then also yeah. go fishing off of it. But, you know, that's definitely a cool option for somebody. So, I mean, there's different price points for anyone that's wanting to look at, uh, you know, different ways to be able to access public land, uh, you know, like what you're doing. I mean, that kayak you have right now, I mean, you said that's under $400. Is that right? I got it on sale for 200 but I'm telling you, it's for the money. It's better than the most $500 models I've looked at. And uh, 
you know, my, my strategy, it fits perfect. The climber fits perfect on the back of it. Uh, I'm going to make the mod to be able to strap my bow safe and securely on the front. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it is the perfect size. Now, you can't put a full-size deer in it, but, I mean, my strategy is going to be that when I come, hopefully I have that problem where I shoot a big buck a mile <laughs> in. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my GoPro, take pictures, obviously film my recovery. I'm going to take pictures with the deer on a timer mode with my phone in the woods, and then I'm going to dress the deer out right there and cape him out in the woods, pack the meat up uh, in my pack with uh, those white meat bags uh, that you can get and quarter the deer out, debone all the meat, and from there I'm going to cape the deer out, roll the hide up, and put it on the kayak and then roll out. So, I mean, that's another option. If it's legal in your state, to just, you know, tag the deer, tax the tag the deer, uh, telecheck, whatever you're doing, you know, check check your local regs to make sure you can do that, but I know you can do that um, in Georgia, so that's, yeah. that's an option. Yeah, you're 100% right. I think that's too. Yeah, I mean, know Andrew's trying to out, man. figure out how to drag a deer, you know, a thousand yards if he runs away or a or hundred yards best case scenario all the way to the river or creek or, or whatever and then try to figure out a way to float him all the way paddling uh, getting caught up in snags I mean you could I thought about putting two life vests around a deer and then float him out that's an option um, but I just think it's going to be a lot more trouble than it's worth uh we all want to have the deer with us, show our buddies the deer live, but I mean, it's, it's always an option, I guess you could you could do if it came down to it. Yeah. Well, uh, we're rolling up right at the one hour mark, so before we start to wind this thing down, uh, Jordan, I wanted to ask you about Georgia's season, because I, it looks like I am going to get a Georgia hunting license this year, and you guys open up, I think, September 9th for archery deer is that right september 8th i believe september 8th so yeah. i guess uh-huh. you have uh, opportunities at velvet bucks in georgia right or is that too late yes. for velvet definitely have opportunity for velvet deer uh i've had bucks still in velvet um i don't discriminate <laughs> he's mature and and uh he's mature buck velvet or no velvet i'm gonna sling air at him but uh yeah it's uh yeah it's coming up, man. I, I went and uh, checked. You know, for years it's been illegal to bait deer, hunt over. You could bait deer or something on feed, but you could not hunt on top of a food source like that. Um, in the northern zone, in the southern zone, you can. Um, that line kind of runs from making up uh, the northern zone. But this year they passed the law where you, you can. Um, whether that's your thing or not, uh, I think it's just a tool, it's no guarantee. It's all about access and getting a buck on a pattern. It, it's, it's not like a gimme. It's not like you just throw corn out there and, and here he comes. Uh, it's a lot of strategy that still goes into it. But uh, whether you're hunting them coming off the corn or another food source, I'm hunting muscadines on public land. Um, you know, I found a grove of swamp chestnut oaks, which is like swamp gold. Yeah, oh, yeah, um, yeah. We have those in Alabama. Here. Yes, I found like 20 of them in, a, in a one spot. This, they're loaded. So that's going to be your late October food source. But 
I guess my main point is whatever your strategy uh, is as far as food sources uh, this year in Georgia, you can't put corn out. But I went to one of my troughs the other day, and man, they had late bit clean. They're eating, you know, probably 350 pounds a week and uh, of protein pellets. But I'm excited, man. That's uh, it's gonna come in and got like three different sets. Um, I'm hunting off of it a good way still, even though it's legal, because I just it's better for my access to get in there yeah. without being seen. But yeah, it's coming up, man. I'm excited. Lots of probably 30, 36 or thirty seven sets in Georgia between Georgia and South Carolina. So hopefully, uh, I feel good about all of them. Yeah. So, we'll see. so it sounds like all three of us between Georgia, South Carolina, and Tennessee are going to have a crack at a velvet buck this year. So. Uh, yeah. Jacob, when does Alabama open no, up? No, we don't open until October 15th, so we're way past Velvet, you know. Uh, okay, yeah, you are. Yeah, but, um, so, yeah, that's another thing, man, about buying a Georgia license. I get, you know, over a month more of bow hunting for deer. I get 15 extra days of turkey season, and I get to hunt bear. So I'm going to go up <laughs> yeah, probably man. either with my friend George or our friend uh, Steve Angel from the Traditional Outdoors podcast. He offered to uh, yeah. try and put me on some bears in North Georgia, so I'd really like to do that. But, uh, yeah, all three of us are going to get a crack at a velvet bucket, it seems like. So, uh, Jacob, do you have any kind of specific strategy? We'll, I, we'll kind of end on this, but, uh, like, velvet buck strategy. Jacob, uh, what do you have going on for the August hunt in Tennessee? So, with this August velvet hunt, which any guy, anybody that's not living in Tennessee right now, y'all probably haven't heard about this because it hasn't, to be honest – they didn't get a lot of media uh, coverage, but it's because it's private or, land only, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but so Tennessee passed a reg this year that they're gonna try out this three-day uh, velvet hunt. Okay, it's gonna be August twenty-fourth, fifth, and sixth. Okay, which is, I mean, that's a month. That's almost two months earlier than I'm ever used to hunting whitetail. So it's unbelievable. So you know, it's a chance to harvest a whitetail buck. Uh, I think you can take you can take both your legal bucks. Tennessee, you get two bucks a year. You can take both your bucks in that season, one a day. There's no does. Um, so, so my tactic is I did get permission uh, from a buddy of ours to hunt his property, uh, which is just south of town, south of Nashville, probably 20 miles or so. Uh, he's, he's got pictures of bucks uh, from this past year just off his back porch. Uh, he, he's not the biggest hunter, but he definitely wants to get into hunting, so he's excited hey, for Jacob, us. Jacob, I hate to interrupt you, but what's the zip code where you're at? <laughs> where I'm at right now? Oh, I don't know. I don't know, dude. Well, I'll tell you where I'm at right now. My, my, it's Yeah, but no, don't, don't worry about it, man. <laughs> no, I'm saying what's the zip code? I'm going to look at the solar inner forecast for the 24th, 25th, and 26th. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. No, it's uh, 37076. 37076? That is correct. All right. But uh, anyways, so, so back to kind of like our game plan. Uh, it's about 40 acres we have to hunt. Uh, it's on the um, south side of actually a pretty good size residential area. Uh, he lives in an area, it's, you could classify, it's outside the city limits, but it's it has some suburba, sub, suburban feel to it. Gosh, I can't talk. But uh, it's it's 40 acres. Uh, it's, it's a mix of old uh, pastures and some timber mixed in with it uh, it's got a good sized pond on the property and he's actually had uh he's actually walked up on like very large bucks there's a barn so he's in this house behind the house is a small barn wooden barn and you know it kind of grows up and everything and uh the landowner 
uh, you know, doesn't really cut the grass out there much, you know, cut his fields. Um, so he's walked up to that barn before and actually jumped bucks. There's an old tractor in the barn, jumped bucks off the side of the tractor while he's walked out there before, uh, just them bedded there. Uh, so there's absolutely a ton of deer around there. So our game plan is I'm about to drop some cameras off. We're about to set some cameras up uh, this weekend, hopefully, uh, out there and try to get a better idea of so, where some of these bucks are uh, patterned at. The problem is I'm, I think there's going to be the issue is access is interesting. Uh, we're going to have to have pretty much some kind of north northwest or north-northeast wind to be able to access the property. And it's kind of like in somewhat of a bowl. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. Also, there's there are trees on the property. There are some tree lines, but it's not like you know heavily covered in trees. There's a lot of open areas. Uh, so hopefully, while we go out there and do some scouting, we can find some areas that either we can either have some stands hung, or we might have to be making some ground blinds and see how that works out. But uh, you know, we're not going to be planting any kind of food sources, no food plots or anything on the property. We're just pretty much going out there and scouting it and trying to you know, work the, uh, the territory and the land as it sits and try to make the most out of it. Yeah, man. That, that know, sounds exciting, dude. You're right on the, uh, tail end of a rising moon phase on that weekend or that, that time frame. So that should be pretty good. I think right. The moon's rising that open of that three day season. The moon's rising at like four thirty. Mm-hmm. So early season, that's normally when I, get a crack at a big one is when that moon's already rising early and it's full um so hopefully that'll work out good for you yeah i'm excited about it i know my buddy uh drew lochte you know he's super excited about the whole situation uh, i think we have a pretty good opportunity especially the, the the deer population there is unbelievable which i mean this is a little note for everybody the deer population anywhere around nashville is absolutely crazy um so, you know, that's just kind of another benefit we have on that property. Uh, so, you know, with the permission that we have to be able to hunt, I think we'll be able to do pretty good. And hopefully we can, you know, we can hit a, we can get a buck down that, that season, also on camera. Uh, so that's, that should be awesome. Great opportunity for us. Uh, Andrew, um, you know, are you going to try to do any kind of early season hunting? I guess Georgia's on your on your list for this year. Got Georgia on my mind, dude. Um, yeah, I'm going to get the license, and I'm probably going to, I think y'all's small game season opens in like mid-August, which is also a month earlier than ours. So I'll probably come over and do some small game hunting, um, and uh, hopefully within during the month of July at some point, I want to get out. And I've got like four different WMAs I'm looking at that aren't they're I think they're all less than an hour and a half from me. So I'm going to try and go hit some of those in Georgia and uh, try and find some buck beds. And I don't know much about early season velvet hunting, but right now my basic plan is kind of what it always is, and that is find buck beds, find food sources, uh, and try and relate the two together and just try and get really tight into buck bedding. And uh, I have this one area I've been looking at on the map that I I really think that I could find some buck beds in there. And uh, I'm going to go in there and be super aggressive in the early season and then probably not hunt that much uh in october in georgia because alabama will be opening up so i'm gonna hunt really really aggressive throughout september and all these different spots i have hunt in alabama and give my spots a break and then come back you know later in the season for georgia a few times whenever the rut kicks in in these different areas and uh again just trying to focus on some rut spots like some thermal hubs some uh some like ridges that 
these bucks might be cruising, funnels, pinch points, right. buck bedding, doe bedding, like the, the kind of stuff we always talk about. And then, yeah. of course, at some point, I'm going to go attempt to shoot a bear in North Georgia. Awesome. Yeah, dude, it, it should be <laughs> well, fun, yeah. man. Let me know. Uh, send me a message on the WMAs. I might be able to point you in the right uh, direction. You're always welcome. Uh, y'all are always welcome to come down here, and uh, I can I can set you out on something. Yeah, dude, I'm, I, I need to come hunt with you, Jordan. Jacob's got to hunt with you, but I still haven't got to hunt with you yet. <laughs> yeah, send it, man. You <laughs> so anybody yeah, who doesn't who doesn't that. get that reference, <laughs> you need to go back and listen to one of the other episodes with Jordan because Jacob screwed up in turkey season and it was funny. <laughs> you got to send it. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the love, guys. I appreciate hey, the love. Gonna, don't worry, Jacob. We're going to get after that one next year. That oh, turkey's man, got right. your tur- name on it. Man, that turkey's gonna be thirty-five pounds with a twenty-inch beard by next year. We're gonna call. You know what? I think we just named that turkey Jacob. I think we we, we want to call it Jacob. Yeah. We're naming that turkey Jacob or Jacob. So, so I gotta go kill Jacob. We'll go. We'll, we'll go kill Jacob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Dang. Well, does uh, uh that pretty much wraps things up? I guess. Does anybody have any closing thoughts? Yeah. Any concluders? That's it. Good luck to everybody uh, that's going to be out there. Stay safe. Wear your harness. Um, and let's go put some bucks in the back of the truck. Yeah, man. And uh, I will say that uh, everyone be watching out for that series. We're going to be starting probably in September or maybe late August, just depending on when people want us to start doing it. Uh, it's going to be similar to Strut Report but with deer. So it'll be at one episode every week, probably on Fridays, Thursdays or Fridays. That we're gonna drop. Is that gonna be called the Buck Report? Maybe. We're. Did we decide on a name, Jacob? Yeah. Yes, we did. Okay. We said Buck Report. Okay, Buck Report. Yeah. Um, All right. We're gonna and, call it. And the, jo- what? Yeah, and Jordan. I was gonna say, and Jordan was the one that helped us name that. He came up with that whole idea. So, oh, Jordan, gotcha. we, we appreciate it. Oh, I heard that. Well, I didn't know. I was just throwing a name out there. No, yeah, no, it's so, all good. Dude. I, I, go I like it. It's, Oh yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a good content. It's gonna be a lot of good content. But uh, anyways, guys, we appreciate y'all checking in on this week's episode. Uh, so definitely get ready to tune in for next week. See what else we got going on, and uh, get ready for this August season. At least I'm getting ready for this August season. So I guess we'll catch everybody later. Yeah, man. Uh, so I guess we'll right, I sign off, it. dude. So uh, Tiffany, say thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody. You heard it there. See you next week. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it, you're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out, and figure 
out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no-brainer. You gotta be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.